How many of you have seen ads for Ancestry.com? Or maybe you've, you've like logged on, you have an account, and you've done this. You want any hands? Okay, so quite a few. Um, so this is what they do. Um, you go in, you fill out a lot of information, and they even do DNA testing. And so, you know, you try to find out more about your, your, where you're coming from, your family background, your, your family tree, your history, and, uh, and the genetics. And, and so they send you this packet. You take this little swab, swab your cheek, the inside of your cheek, inside your mouth. You put it in the sterile packaging. You send it back to them. And in about six to eight weeks, they get back with you, and they send you this full report, this exhaustive thing um, about, you know, your family tree and your background and your history and your DNA going back for a long, 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 long time. And I know friends, I actually know two people uh, recently that have done this. And uh, one guy that I know, he said, you know, he'd heard rumors all through his life, you know, about his family tree and family background. And, you know, he, he knew that he was predominantly like, you know, Scotch-Irish, English, that whole, you know, th they have a whole little melting pot themselves going on there. Uh, but he, there was all these rumors all the time of like, you know, we got a little Indian, you know, a little uh, um, uh, American, Native American in us, a little Indian in us. And, um, and so there was all these rumors about, you know, that, you know, we got some Cherokee in our family. And he got his DNA test back and there was zero Native American in his blood. No, none of that DNA. But he, he was kind of like, he found it, he was pretty excited to find out he was like 3% Jewish. So he was, he thought that was pretty cool. And, uh, and so people, people are so excited uh, about, you know, and, and um, this DNA testing, and they're excited about finding out their, their family history and where they're coming from. And uh, they, this is another cool thing. They even help you connect with, like, distant relatives, you know, third and fourth and fifth and sixth cousins that you never knew you had and probably don't really care to know that you have unless they're famous, and then you want to go track them down and, you know, try to like get money from them or something I don't know what <laughs> I don't know I'm just kidding but why are people so interested in DNA testing why are they so excited about this stuff and researching their family trees because we all want to know who we are and where we came from you know uh, we realize that who we are is a lot more than what our name is who we are has a lot there's a lot more to it than than what we do for a living who we are there, there's a lot more to it than than how we spend our free time and so there are things in our background that have shaped us and molded us, even whether we know it or not. They've had an effect on our lives. And so we've got this strong desire to find the, the root and our true our identity. So the big question we asked last week, we're asking this week also, is who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? So do it again. Turn to your neighbor to the left or the right and ask them, who do you think you are? Now, y'all didn't do any better than you did the first time last week. <laughs> Try it again. Turn to somebody and just tell them, like in that judgmental kind of, like, who do you think you are? Do it. Who do you think you are? These guys have it down in, in like, unison. So, anyway, y'all have been practicing this week, haven't you? Good job. It's so affirming. <laughs> They're roommates. You guys say that to each other a lot. No, I'm just teasing. Yeah. The truth is, is that the answer to that question has, it affects our life in every single way. And, and it's not just, you know, who you are, it's who you think you are. 
It's not just who you are. It's what you really think about yourself. It's who you think you are is what really makes the difference. It's what really matters. It, it affects who you think you are, your identity, what, who you identify with or what you identify with affects the way that you feel. It affects the way that you think. It affects the way that you talk. It affects the way that you hear things when people say them because you're hearing through a filter. It affects the way that you speak about things. It affects everything in your entire life. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is kind of laying this out here. And actually, the whole book of Ephesians is just so rich with, uh, with things about identity. And a lot of the things that you see here in the video, that bumper just a few minutes ago, a lot of that just comes straight out of the book of Ephesians. And, and so in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul's writing about this new identity that we have in Christ. And let's read here, starting with verse 17. And this is what he says. With the Lord's authority, I say this. Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Now, when he's saying Gentiles here, you know, he's talking about people who are far from God, people who are not in relationship with God. Uh, that, that's what he's talking about here. And so, of course, we know that there's, there's Jews, they were the people of God, and then God adopted, he's opened the door and made it available for all of us who are not Jewish to come and to be in relationship with him, to come and be part of the family. And so we can do that when we step through that threshold, but although we're, we're technically still Gentile, we're still part of the family of God. But when Paul's talking about here, he's talking about those who have not stepped through that threshold yet, whether they were, really, whether they were Jewish or Gentile. But for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they've, got, they've closed their minds and hardened their hearts against Him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from Him, I love that statement right there, the truth that comes from him, the truth that comes from Jesus. That's a powerful statement. If we just got that and actually got the full revelation of that truth comes from Jesus, that would change our lives in so many ways. But he says, since you've heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew, everybody say renew, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. What is Paul doing here? He's comparing the old us with the new us. He said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17. He says, if we are in Christ, we are new creatures. We're a new creation. We have a different DNA now. We're a different species now. And old things are gone away. They've passed away. They're dead. And everything else now is new to us. We have a new life to us. We were born under a curse. Our identity was that we were born into sin. We were born with all the failings and the frailty of humanity. But when we come into the truth that comes from Jesus, He changes everything. Jesus changes everything. We become a new person with a new identity. We have a brand new spiritual passport. That's what uh, uh, Philippians, Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 says, is that we are now citizens, not of this earth, not of a specific nation, but we're now citizens of heaven. 
So when you think about that, you think of like, well, I have a new, if I'm, if I'm a citizen of somewhere, then I have an identification from that place. I'm from the state of Tennessee. I live in the state of Tennessee. So I have a Tennessee driver's license. When I travel outside of the country, I travel with a U.S. passport because this is where I'm from. This is where I live. And so if we are citizens of heaven, then we ought to be living our everyday life with the identification that comes from that place, not from the old life. Amen? I don't usually ask for amens, but I just wanted to test if you were listening. It's not that I just need the affirmation. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said that we need to be born again. We're, we're born into the flesh, but not, well, now we're not just born into the flesh. Now we're born of the Spirit. And so when you got born again, you might have thought, oh, I'm born again. I'm a new creature. I'm a new creation. I heard somebody talking about this. I'm going to run over to the mirror. And you look at the mirror, and you're like expected to be like a halo above your head. And there's not that. But that's not how it works. It's not the outside doesn't change. The change happens first on the inside. It happens there, and what, what, what happens uh, is the Holy Spirit is now living inside of you. You are now the dwelling place of God. You have been redeemed. You've been redeemed. What does that mean? That's, that's a $5 word right there. That means you've been bought. You've been purchased. And the price that you were purchased with was the blood of Jesus. Jesus sacrificed himself so we could be adopted into the family of God and now have this new identity, have this new spiritual passport. Something that we need to understand, though, is that there's a difference between being redeemed and then actually walking in the full inheritance of what it means to be redeemed. There's a difference between, yes, I'm, I know that I'm redeemed, and then there's a difference between that and then actually living the life of someone who's experienced redemption. Being redeemed, becoming a Christian, becoming a child of God, that all happens in a moment, in the blink of an eye, in the snap of a finger. Redemption happens that fast. It happens in a moment. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is not just, oh, okay, um, I'm saved and I get to go to heaven now. And I don't have to go to hell. That's not the end of the story. Now God wants to restore everything back to us that's been broken. And so this process in which God restores back to us, we've been redeemed, now he wants to restore, but the process in between is called renewal. And so God redeems us, then he renews us so that he can restore us. Can everybody say that? God redeems us, God renews us, God restores us. That's the process. A lot of us get hung up in our thinking and again, you guys, you, some of you are like, I mean, this is the third week now I'm hearing him talk about identity. When's he going to talk about anything else? Listen, we're talking about this because we need to get this drilled down on the inside of us. So I'm saying a lot of the same things in different ways. I understand that. But it's so that it can come alive to us and be a revelation to us and we can actually walk out of here changed and not just walk out of here and go, ooh, that was a, he said some cool things today. 
That's not the goal of this. That's not the goal of, of, of reading the word. That's not the goal of, of preaching. So that we can just go, well, wasn't that nice? No, so we can go out of here and actually walk in that identity, actually carry that passport. So, so a lot of us get, get hung up in thinking that our identity is determined by our behavior. As a matter of fact, this week I just saw somebody that I love dearly post something about, hey, if you want to change your identity, change your behavior. I understand that's the way that our world works. That's the system that our world operates in, but that's not how the kingdom of God operates. No, you, you change first who you identify with. Then the behavior comes along. On, you know, that's the process, okay? So, so if your identity, let me, let's just go down this, this rabbit hole here for a second. If your identity is determined by your behavior, then, then whatever is your weakest link, whatever area that you're specifically weak in, if you have an addiction in, to something in particular, then you're always going to find your identity in that. Because that's your behavior. And you think, well, my behavior is my identity. Then whatever temptation has the strongest pull on you, that's what you will identify with. That will become your identity, and it will keep you from walking in the full inheritance that Jesus paid for and redeemed you to. Does it mean it doesn't belong to you? No. Does it mean that you're any less of a Christian? No. No, it doesn't mean any of those things. You know, you can know all kinds of things, but until you actually apply the things that you know, they don't change your life. And so, if you identify with your behavior as your identity, then whatever that weakest link is in your life, that's what you'll identify with, that whatever your behavior is. But that's not, again, that's not the system of the kingdom of God. The strategy of the enemy is he's always wanting to whisper in your ear and tell you who he thinks you are. Now, the truth is, is the enemy really does know who you are. He knows your spiritual identity in Christ. He just wants you to think what he wants you to think. He doesn't tell you the truth. The most powerful moment in your life is when you become born again and you become redeemed. But the second most powerful moment in your life is when you actually begin to get that revelation and wake up and realize who you are. And you wake up and you realize, oh, this is my identity. And you discover who you are. The, the first four books of the Bible, uh, excuse me, not the, the Bible, the first four books of the New Testament, we call the Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And all four of the Gospels record Jesus' baptism. And if we look at that story, uh, we see some different details in, in some of the different books and some of the different recordings. And so we put this story together. And we, we see that John, Jesus' cousin, was baptizing at the Jordan River. And the thing about John is that he actually was in the lineage of the high priest. And so he's actually got some spiritual authority. He's not just some weird dude out there wearing camel hair and eating locusts, uh, you know, eating some wild berries and stuff and just dunking people in the water. No, this guy's actually got a spiritual mandate, uh, an anointing on his life, and he's got authority. And he is baptizing anyone and everyone that wants to repent of their sin. And then Jesus sh shows up to the river. And he, he comes there to be baptized by John. 
And John's like, uh, Jesus. I mean, I mean, this is... John and Jesus were cousins. They grew up together. They knew each other. John knows who Jesus is. He's been preparing the way. He's been preaching the coming of the Messiah. And he's like, uh, Jesus, I have no business baptizing you. I'm not worthy to baptize you. You baptize me. But here's the thing. Jesus did not come to be baptized for the repentance of his sin. He was without sin. This was a different baptism that Jesus was seeking here. And so, uh, what, what happened here? John does baptize Jesus. Jesus comes up out of the water. Then God splits the sky. And everyone that's there hears this voice, the voice of God from heaven, an audible voice. Not just one weird, creepy person. You're like, man, that guy always hears from God. But no, the in- everybody there... Bless his heart. Everybody there hears God's voice. And this is what God says. This is my son. This is my son that I love. And this is my son that I'm most pleased in. Jesus came to be baptized, not to repent, but to reveal to us that he was the fulfillment of baptism. He came to reveal to us a new identity. We no longer identify with that sinner who stands there dry, but we identify with the son who's been resurrected up out of the water, who's drenched in God's love and approval. And that's who we now identify with. So Jesus comes up out of the water. Everyone hears the voice of God. Then what happens? The Holy Spirit, visible, comes down in the form of a dove. And rests on Jesus. And now Jesus is endued with this special power from the Holy Spirit. And he goes into this 40-day period from, from there being baptized. He goes into this 40-day period of praying and fasting right before he starts his public ministry. And so we see God's purpose for our lives, the ministry that he has planned for us, can only be fully tapped into after we get that revelation of our identity in Christ. And then we're filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is what Paul is explaining to the church in Ephesus. You know, you used to walk in the world. Your hearts were dark. You were spiritually blind. You see where I'm putting the emphasis here? In the past. You did walk in the world. You, your hearts were dark. You were spiritually blind. You were driven by your desires. But that's the old you. Now, the truth about you is in Jesus. And Jesus changes everything. He makes all things new, including you. Remember, when you wake up in the morning, you don't, you're not going to go over to the closet. I'm not talking about the literal closet, but I'm talking about the identity closet. And you're not going to put on the old rags. You're not going to put on those old clothes. They don't just smell funny. They stank. Yeah. <laughs> They're like... It doesn't, you ever run something through the wash and it comes out and you're like, this still is kind of weird. <laughs> These clothes smell, they're dirty, they're stained, they got rips in them, they got holes in them. I'm not talking about those cool hipster pants. I'm talking about, like, the, these, are, the, these are unfit. They're, they got holes in them. You're not going to put those on. 
what you're going to go over is and you're going to go over to uh, uh, not, not the old man's closet. You're going to go over to Jesus' closet. And you're going to get some things out of his closet. And you're going to wear the things that are in his closet. And those things smell downy fresh in there. Those things fit perfectly. You're like, wow, this feels good. This fits, this fits perfectly, this robe of righteousness. It's clean. It looks good. It fits you well. It's not, it doesn't have any holes in it, but it is holy. And, 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 you, and you're like, wow, this is what this likes. The thread, the thread, it's been stitched with the thread of righteousness by the master tailor, Jesus himself. That's what we wear. That's in the morning when you wake up. That's the closet that you go to. When you look in the mirror tomorrow morning, you don't look at it and say, I'm an addict. I'm subpar. I'm mediocre. I have anger issues. I have lust issues. I'm depressed. My life means absolutely nothing. No. No. You look in the mirror. Th- those things are things that you might still, there might be some remnants of that in your life. But that's not your identity. God is in the process of renewing you so that he can restore you. When you look in the mirror tomorrow morning, you look, hey, look at that good-looking child of God right there. I'm redeemed. I am an overcomer. I have the joy of the Lord. Every spiritual blessing belongs to me in Christ Jesus. I'm redeemed. I'm holy. I'm pure. I'm created in Christ Jesus for good works. I'm Satan's greatest nightmare. The systems of this world tell us that our identity is shaped by what we do, but the truth in Jesus is shaped by what he has done. Listen, and what he has done cannot be undone. What you have done can be undone. But what he has done cannot be undone. What you're tempted by, what your flesh desires, whatever your fleshly proclivities are, that's not who you are. Who you are is who you belong to. And God says that we have redeemed you, we've picked you up, and we've transported you now out of this kingdom of darkness and now into the kingdom of of the son of whom he dearly loves and whom the father dearly loves you belong to jesus that's who your identity is in now the world they shout the world shouts loud and proud this this message whatever you feel like is who you are whatever you feel like doing is who you are whatever you whatever your past is whatever you've been involved in doing that's who you are But that's not what God says over you. There is a battle that's raging on the inside of you. And it's it's a... I think we've said this before, and this is not like something I made up, but there are two wolves. Which one survives? The one you feed. So which identity are you going to feed into? Romans 8 says this, that there's this old nature that's hostile towards God, and it wants to do its own thing. Now, I know that probably none of you in here can identify with that because you're perfect and you're holy and you walk in all righteousness and truth every single moment of your life. And I know that 
uh, you know, you never, when you've had a bad day, you never want to go home and just rant on social media and trash people. And I know that that's not something that you ever feel like or tempt, are tempted to do. I know that, you know, when you're cut off, someone cuts you off on I-24. I know that, um, that you just want to just pray for them and bless them. And, and you don't want to tell them who's number one. <clears throat> you just, that's, that's. That's not the Holy Spirit directing you to give them sign language. Listen to the podcast later. You'll get it. Every single day we walk out the door, we have a choice. Uh, What passport are we going to take with us today? Are you going to take the passport that says struggles with sin, struggles with lust, struggles with pride, has attitude issues, stubborn, selfish, liar? Or are you going to grab the passport that says child of God, temple of the Holy Spirit, purposed for God's destiny, sanctified, self-controlled? Whose passport, which passport are you going to carry? If we go back to the very beginning, go back to the beginning of, of what we know as time, in the book of Genesis... We see that when God created man, he had four things in mind when it came to our identity. The first one was this. The first thing that God had in mind when it came to our identity is that God created us to reflect his image. The moon reflects the light of the sun. Humanity was intended to reflect the image of God on the earth to the rest of God's good creation. None of the animals were created in God's image and likeness. You may have heard it said that we we are just more highly evolved than animals. But that's not the case. Animals do not carry the imprint of the character and nature of God. They are created by God, but they are not created in His image and likeness like we are. We are not just like more highly evolved animals that are driven by our instinct. That's not who we are. If that's who you think you are, if that's what, who you identify with, that's who you identify your background with, then you will notice that you will be just driven by your instincts. And we all know that animals, when they're driven by their instinct, they, you know, everything just works out really well for them all the time. They never get into any trouble, you know. How many of you have a dog or, I was going to say cat, but <laughs> cats just do their own thing all the time. I've got, I've got a dog. Unfortunately, he's on his deathbed right now, and we're just praying that God you know, breathes life into him. And I really do have faith for that. I don't think he's going to be in heaven. I just want, I don't want my dog to die. Um, but there are times when my dog does not pay attention to what I want him to do. And when he does that, like, Cash, do not run outside. When I say Cash, I don't mean like I'm calling my dog Cash, like money. Cash is short for Johnny Cash. And so we name our animals after like, you know, famous country star so anyway (laughs) my cat's name is Elvis Presley I shouldn't say my cat it's my family's cat it's not really my cat um cash don't run out the door he runs out the door and he's messing around the street and I remember one time he went across the street across the park over the hill and he got into highway 96 and my wife was out there freaking out because she thinks the dog's gonna get hit by a car because he's driven by his instinct. And if you are just a more highly evolved animal and are driven by your instinct, 
You might not be running around out in the middle of Highway 96, but you're going to do something, and you're going to get yourself hurt. I'm not prophesying that over you. I'm just saying that's how that works. So I, I'm not just a more highly evolved animal. I'm created in the image and likeness of God. He created me to reflect His good image to the rest of His good creation here. We're created to reflect His image. Also, God created us for intimacy. Now you think, you're like, ooh, intimacy. <laughs> yes, that. But that's not what I'm talking about. A really good definition, I think, for intimacy is just when you invite someone into your experience. I think it's a really good, it's kind of more broad. Uh, but when, we, when you hear us talking about being intimate with God, it's not, I'm wanna, I don't want to make out with God. What I'm talking about is I want, to, I, want to be, I want God to be in my experience. I want to be in God's experience. And so that's what he did. And even the creation story. He created mankind, and then he invited mankind into his story. And you know, God did not name the animals. God did not take that responsibility. He created them, but then he invited man into the experience. And he said, now you name the animals. I want to be, in the, I want to be intimate with you, and, and because I want to be in, intimate with mankind, I'm inviting you to participate in what I'm doing in. God invites us to be close in partnership with what he's doing on the earth. God created us for intimacy. God also created us for relationship. In creation, in this story, the only thing that God said that was not good was that what? Man, it is not good that man is alone. I don't want man to be alone. Yes, it's good that he's intimate with me. It's good that he has a relationship with me, but he needs a companion also. So God, God's the first matchmaker. He made that first woman. He brought, he brought Eve to Adam. He brought the woman to man. And man said, whoa, man. That's deep theological stuff right there. Write that down. But God created them with this intent that they would be in an intimate relationship where they could be fruitful and multiply. Some people think that marriage is like this man-made institution. But no, it was God's plan from the very beginning to perpetuate His identity, His, that we would reflect His character and nature, and then through this genetic code that we would perpetuate it through the earth and reflect God's character and nature. God created us for a relationship, and then God also created us for destiny. Our destiny is this. Our destiny is to subdue the earth, and, and have dominion. And when I say that, I don't mean like we're going to subdue the earth and we're going to be irresponsible with our natural resources. And it doesn't matter. We can just cut all the trees down. And I'm not, okay, there, there's a ditch on both sides of the road there. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not just talking, although we do, need, we do need to be good stewards of the resources that God has given us. And that doesn't just mean the zeros in our bank account, how many, you know, wherever the decimal point is. I'm talking about just everything that God has given to us. That's why I don't want my dog to die. I don't want my dog to die because I want to do everything that I can to be a good steward. Now, if he dies, I'm not going to walk in guilt and shame. That's not all of it's under my control. The dog stinking ate something he shouldn't have, and he's got something lodged in his stomach. He was, he was <laughs> driven by his natural instinct. 
I don't want to make this sermon about the dog. It's not about the dog. <laughs> but listen, we were created to reign and rule with God on earth. So man's walking with God, but then Satan shows up on the scene. He shows up on the scene in the, in the form of some kind of serpent, and he deceives the woman. He deceives Eve, and then the man, Adam, he buys into the deception too. And here's how he, he challenged them. Here's how he challenged Eve. He asked this. He says, did God really say that you couldn't eat of every tree in the garden? What's the enemy testing here? What did he ask? Did God really say? The enemy is testing God's word. He's testing what God has spoken. And here's the follow-up lie. God knows that if you eat that, then you'll just be, you'll be just like him. And he doesn't want you to be just like him. What's this deception based around? It's based around identity. The serpent lied about their identity, and he challenged what God had said. He challenged God's word. So the question, if, if Adam and Eve, if the man and the woman, if you and I, if we're already created in the image and likeness of God, then who, who are we like? It's not a trick question. The, the lie wasn't so much about what they would become. The, the lie was about tricking them into not realizing who they were already. But they were already like God. But he deceived them to thinking, oh, there's this whole other level of freedom. There's this whole other level of pleasure. And you're never going to experience the ultimate levels of freedom and ple pleasure unless you break away from God, unless you divide yourself and separate yourself from God and disobey God. And the enemy is still using that same tactic today. Did God really say, oh, there's a whole other level of freedom. There's a whole other level of, of, um, of pleasure out there. And you're not, you're, you're not going to be able to, to walk in that freedom or pleasure unless you just take things into your own hands. But just like the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you bite into it, and it is sweet to the taste, but it is poison to your life. Most of the identity issues that we struggle with today don't have really anything to do with whether or not we're good people or bad people. It's not about, you know, um, we don't have potential or purpose. It's because at some point we believed a lie, and now our view of ourselves is distorted, and it's broken. We don't really know who we are. We were created, God created us to reflect his image, but now our image is shattered because of the lie. God created us to be intimate with him, but our ability to be intimate is now damaged, not just with him, but with everybody. God created us for relationships, but our relationships are fragmented. God created us to, uh, for a destiny and to rule and to reign with him, but our destiny has been hijacked. But the good news is that God redeemed us and he, God is renewing us and God is restoring us. Everything that was lost to us, everything that was lost to us in the garden, Jesus has restored paradise. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 17. Paul says this, For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, Adam, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, Jesus Christ, many will be made righteous. This is great news. This is the good news. So what do we do with that old self? What do we do with that old nature? What do we do with that old man that's wanting to hang around all the time? Sounds really creepy. This guy is trying to tease us with temptation. He wants us to do things our own way. What do we do with this guy? What's it going to take? It takes the process of renewal. I just said, Jesus restored paradise to us. For us to realize this, for paradise to be restored, it's going to require a paradigm renewed. Paradise restored requires a paradigm renewed. Let me share this story with you. We'll, we'll close it out here. Some of you are like, thank God, I'm hungry. I want to go to lunch. Um, a few years ago, about 10 years ago, there was this guy in Maryland named David Howe. And he's just a regular guy, a mechanic. And he was kind of doing the whole researching my ancestry kind of thing. And he's researching online. And he's finding some very interesting things in his lineage. And he then hires like a professional investigator to check into these things. And he comes to find out that he is heir to the throne of the Isle of Man. Sounds like a made-up place, you know, in a galaxy far, far away. The Isle of Man is, is a small island that sits in the Irish Sea right in between England and Ireland. A population of about 80,000 people. It's, it's kind of, it's self-governed, but it's also like, a, you know, a, a British crown, you know, dependency. And David was like, is this, this legit? Is this real? People, he, he hired people from, from Great Britain, from England, to investigate this. And they contacted him back, and they're like, this is legit. You heard the air. And, and, and so... David, a few years after he discovered this, about, it took him about seven years, he and his wife and his daughter decide, we're going to go claim the throne. We're going over there. <laughs> right? <laughs> so he got there, and, but he was met with a few challenges. The first challenge was that nobody really believed him. I'm, I'm not talking about the government officials. All the government officials had the information. They were kind of probably flabbergasted and shocked and like, what in the world? This, this American guy who's a mechanic is now our royal. But it, it wasn't them he had to convince. It was the commoners. It was the people. He went into a pub and he's sharing a drink with a guy in a pub. And the guy's like, what do you do? He goes, well, I'm the king. The king of what? <laughs> the, your king. It's like, you know, the king of the Brits. You know, a little... <laughs> Sorry, I had to. I had to. I didn't vote for you. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, and so he's having this conversation. And so he's got to prove it to the people that he's the king. And he does. But then the next challenge is that uh, he doesn't know how to behave like a king. He doesn't know how to act like a king. He's never grown up as a king. And then the third challenge was that if he was going to really claim his inheritance, if he was really going to step into his rightful position as king, he was going to have to make the commitment, this is home now. This is where I'm going to live. Not just me, but my wife and my daughter, you know. So, so David hired, King David <laughs> hires this royal advisor, this etiquette coach, you know, like a coach to the royals to teach him how to behave like a royal. Here's how to throw a tea party. Here's how to hold a teacup. Here's how to walk. Here's how to talk. Here's how to dress. Don't do this. This is what you do need to do. All he ever knew up to this point, though, was just being a mechanic. I mean, the guy knew how to turn a wrench. The guy knew how to work on cars. The guy knew how to get grease out from underneath of his fingernails. But he didn't know how to be a king because the ways of a king are not the ways of a mechanic. And that's not a slight to mechanics. It's just a different way of life. Not, if you're a mechanic in here, I thank God for you because there's only a few things that I can do in my car and I'd like to be in a relationship with you. But, <clears throat> but you hear what I'm saying. On, on paper, he was a royal. But before he could fully step into his position... Of royalty, he had to learn the ways of royalty. And he had to make the commitment that this kingdom is going to be my home. If you're a Christian, you're a king. You're a queen. You're royalty. If you're in Christ, that's your position, and nothing can ever change that. You're royalty, and you're called to rule and reign with Christ, but you've got to now make a decision. Are you going to live in the kingdom? You can't live 3,000 miles away in Maryland and just hop on a plane on British Airways and just go visit from time to time. You need to learn how to walk and how to talk and how to function like royalty, and that requires a renewal of your mind. The change in our behavior, our behavior does not affect our identity, but if we want our behavior to change, it does start with changing our thinking and getting a revelation of the change of our position. In Jesus, our position has been changed, and now we have to make a decision. Are we going to come into agreement with that truth, the truth that comes from Jesus? Are we going to come into agreement with that, and now in the way that we think? And then if we do that, it's going to change everything. It's going to change the way that we feel, the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we talk. Far too many of us are living like we're, on paper, we're royalty, but, but functionally, we're mechanics. So it's time to wash the grease off of our hands and learn the ways of royalty. It's time to stand up, put our shoulders back, and walk into that position that Jesus provided for us, that he redeemed for us. It's time to renew our thinking. Next week we're going to talk more about renewing our thinking.
We're going to talk about what does it look like to fix our attention on God. We're going to talk about how do we renew our minds? How do we now live as kings and queens?